0: Welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Greg Ogden, one of the elders here at CPC, and I'm a retired pastor who has not quite figured out how yet to retire, so I'm working on that. It's great to be a part of this um, Lenten series, Living in the Realities of Eternity. And we've picked one of the classic texts here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, where Paul uh, describes in some detail the return uh, of Jesus. It's in the context of a pastoral concern. He ends this section uh, by saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, what's the issue that troubles the Thessalonians that, for their, which they need to be encouraged? Verse 13 states it right out front. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Paul uses the word sleep here as a euphemism for death. We'll get to that uh, in a moment because that's a very important part of the aspect of of hope here. But the situation apparently is that the Thessalonians were anticipating the imminent return of Jesus. Maybe they even thought that... uh, you know, he would come back before anybody died. I think that was probably on their minds. And, and now there's a delay and people have started to die. And so their questions are, you know, what's the destiny of our loved ones uh, who have, have died? Where are they now? Uh, will we see them again? And perhaps the, this delay there is even causing them to say, do we get this right? Is Jesus really coming back or not? Well, I, I love the realism of the way Paul issues his comforting words says, we do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Now, first of all, note what Paul does not say. He does not say that we should not grieve. (laughs) Yes, Christians are given permission to grieve, certainly, uh, when we lose those people that are dear and love that we love. Uh, Death is a disruption. It's a tearing at the fabric of life. And Paul is reminding them that death is, is not natural. This is not what the way it was intended to be. And so Paul is not saying to them, oh, just put on a nice smile and happy face. And yes, they're with Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? No, he says, you know, embrace your grief. That's okay uh, to do. So when we have people with whom our lives have been intertwined and very much a part of the fabric of their life and they are torn away from us, of course, there is going to be sadness and grief. My wife and I are at this stage of life where we talk a bit about uh, who's going first. Uh, I know who's going first in our family, I am, because she has longevity in her family and I don't. So um, that's the way it's going to be. But we have been together now for 51 years. So our identities are wrapped up with each other, Greg and Lily, Lily and Greg. Uh, we have become a part of the kind of role models of each other's life. And so when that disruption occurs, I hope we're not saying, well, I'm so glad they're being with Jesus, and that's wonderful, and that's true. Uh, but at the same time, there is grief uh, that is experienced. And so, and Paul is reminding us that death is not the way it was supposed to be. Now, there may become another emotion that gets connected with death that catches us off guard. Maybe some of you have experienced this. For Christians, anger tends to be a no-no. We're not supposed to be angry about things. But oftentimes, with grief, comes anger. We can't even, I've had people confess to me as a pastor that they uh, felt shamed, that they were feeling angry at the one that they loved had died because we were anticipating our retirement years together, and now they're not here. I'm angry at them uh, for, for having died. And I think Jesus is our model here uh, for how to... Deal with a loss of a dear one uh, in our life. Let me take you back to John chapter 11, when uh, we, we see the story of the raising of Lazarus. Now Mary and Martha and Lazarus had become dear friends with Jesus. They had in, in their lives had been intertwined with each other, and, and Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that their Jesus friend Lazarus is ill. He who you love is ill. And all they have to do is mention this, and they expect Jesus is going to come immediately because of the nature of of their relationship. Well, by the time Jesus gets to Bethany, uh, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Martha meets him first, and it's a bit peeved, frankly, that Jesus had not shown up sooner. If he'd just gotten here in time, you could have saved me all of this grief. In the midst of this, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And then Mary comes with an entourage of those who are weeping and wailing over the loss of Lazarus. And as Jesus sees that weeping and wailing, we get the shortest verse in Scripture. What's that? Jesus wept. If you can memorize that, you can say you've memorized the Scripture, okay? And yet two times, John tells us that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and deeply troubled over Lazarus' death. And as Jesus moves to the tomb where Lazarus has been buried, uh, uh, John says it again, then Jesus deeply moved again. Now, we might think that all Jesus is feeling here is the grief over the loss of of Lazarus, but there's more going on here in that word. Uh, This word, deeply moved, is the same word of a Greek stallion preparing for battle. It's a picture of a combat-trained horse rearing back in his hind legs, pawing the air with muscles rippling and ready to enter into the contest. So a more literal translation of this text would be, Jesus, snorting in spirit, came to the tomb. He was ready to enter battle with death because death was not the way it was supposed to be. Jesus was outraged by this outrageous event. So he calls forth Lazarus. So if anger sneaks up on you in the loss, that's natural. It's a part of this fact that death was an intrusion into life, not the way things were supposed to be. As a pastor, I remember the first time where I experienced this sense of anger. I was pastoring a small church, young pastor in Southern California. There was a woman in our congregation by the name of Mildred. Mildred had worked her way into my heart. She was in her late... Uh, 70s, approaching 80. She was a renaissance woman and uh, you know, was this person that uh, was an attorney as a woman before her time. She was an art collector, very well read. She always had some witty repartee to give me as she was walking out of the service on Sunday morning about my, my message. And one Sunday morning, about an hour before worship, I got a phone call. Now, pastors never like to get phone calls an hour before worship. You know it's not gonna be good news. And on the other end of the line was Mildred's brother, who was telling me that she had been found dead in her home and probably had been dead for a couple of days. When I hung up the phone, there was this geyser of emotion that exploded through me. I can't tell you what I said at that moment. But I was livid over the fact that this woman had died in that way and those circumstances. Jesus hurled himself at Lazarus' death. So we might experience anger, that loss, as well. It's appropriate. I know we often say with those who have been lingering with an illness, we're so thankful that they are relieved of that suffering. And we are. That's, that's appropriate. But at the same time, we, rem- we are reminded that this is not the way this was supposed to be. So Paul is telling us that grief and hope can exist side by side. So now let's turn our attention to the hope uh, that is uniquely Christian. Uh, Verses 14 and 15 is our next text. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So... He talks about the coming of the Lord, and we'll look at that word coming, which is the word parousia here in a moment. But he describes those who have died as those who have what? Fallen asleep. Interesting uh, euphemism there. Even Jesus in Luke and John chapter 11 says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going there to wake him up. And the disciples don't understand. They don't get what Jesus is talking about there. Uh, Jesus literally means, yes, he has died, but I'm going to raise him uh, from the dead. So this metaphor of sleep as a metaphor to understand the nature of death. Now remember the pastoral issue here, the pastoral issue is that the Thessalonians are wondering about the state or status of those who have died before Christ returns. Where are they now? (laughs) They're wondering. An image of sleep, I think, helps us bridge the gap between time and eternity. We're trapped in time. God exists in the eternal present. So, it's very hard for us to understand, okay, 2,000 years now has passed, you know, since the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God. Where are all those people <laughs> who have died in the interim? What, how should we understand that? How do we understand this time delay and what's happened to them? Well, let me see if I can grasp it here through a, an analogy and a story. The analogy of soul sleep is like going under anesthesia for surgery. Any of us... Have that happen? So what happens when you're under anesthesia and you come out of it? It's as if no time has passed. It's a timeless experience, right? Uh, You might even ask the question, did they do the surgery yet? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the the time has happened so so rapidly. So those who die in Christ will have, I think, no awareness of time uh, as we move from one place to the next. Paul says to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. My favorite text that I've told my wife needs to be preached at my funeral service, my memorial service, hopefully it's a memory, um, is John chapter 14, verses one through three. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. Wow, isn't that wonderful? As you enter eternity and exit time, the first thing we will experience is the presence of Christ on the other side, taking us to that place that he has prepared uh, for us. So I think you know, sleep is a very helpful analogy to understand that bridging of time uh, for us. But sleep also... Is something we experience as rejuvenation, right? We go to bed tired and we wake up hopefully renewed uh, in that. And so that's kind of a helpful image as well. Catherine Marshall tells the story of a young boy about 12 years old by the name of Kenneth who was suffering from an incurable illness. And as Kenneth was getting weaker and weaker, he sensed that his days were coming to a close. And so one day out of the blue, he says to his mom, Mom, what's it like to die? does it hurt? And the mother wasn't prepared for that moment. She was caught off guard. And so she sensed the tears welling up inside of her and didn't want Kenneth to see that. So she went off to another room, gathered herself, and then came back uh, with the following wonderful explanation. Kenneth, do you remember when you were younger when you were used to play so hard? You'd be too tired to undress yourself, but just fell asleep in my bed. But in the morning, you would wake up to find yourself in your own bed, in your own room. Your father had come with his strong arms and carried you there. Death is like that. You will wake up to find yourself in your own room where you belong because Jesus cared and carried you with his strong arms. Great image. So death as sleep connects time and eternity, I think, in terms of the way we understand the hope that we have in Christ. Now, for the rest of the text, I want us to look at uh, the theme of the resurrected Christ through four R's. Um, the first is the return of Christ. The second is the resurrection of Christ. The third is the rapture of the saints. And the fourth is, is reunion with the saints. So I think that is all covered in Paul's text here. So first of all, the resurrection, or excuse me, the return of Christ. Verse 15, Paul speaks of the coming of Christ. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left with the, until the coming of the Lord, will precede those who have fallen asleep. So that word coming here is the Greek word parousia. You Maybe you've heard that. Appearing, uh, revelation, the visual uh, return of Christ. And Paul says that there will be an order to those who are returning in terms of the resurrection. Those who are dead in Christ, and here's the word of comfort to his people, will be raised first, and will be coming with Jesus as he returns. And then those who are alive will be caught up together with them in the air. And we'll talk about that reunion experience uh, here in a moment. But in this text, there's going to be no doubt as to when history comes to a close. Here's the description, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel... And with the sound of the trumpet of God. Cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet, all are one way of saying the same thing. Overwhelming, irresistible summons will occur, and nobody will miss it. <laughs> when you think of the cry of command, uh, you go back to Jesus standing before the tomb of Lazarus. <clears throat> Lazarus, come forth. And maybe we will all hear our names. Becky. Come forth, <laughs> and the time will come. And notice the, the sound of the trumpet here. Um, that's repeated throughout Scripture. Just let me give you a sampling of three Scriptures where all things are brought to a close with this sound of a trumpet that will resound throughout the earth. Matthew twenty four thirty one, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And then Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever." And ever. Some of you can sing that portion. <laughs> I think Paul is saying indirectly here, in contrast, when Jesus came in the flesh, he came without fanfare in humility. Little attention attention was drawn to his majesty. He slipped upon earth in almost obscurity. He was born to a peasant couple named Mary and Joseph under the shroud of illegitimacy. For his crib, there was a cattle trough, probably placed in the home among domestic animals. He grew up in anonymity in a town called Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? To a cross, he went in silence, bearing on his body the sin of humanity. He took a Roman soldier, it took a Roman soldier to utter, Surely this is the Son of God. He did all of this so that he could identify with our. Plight, entering into the mess of humanity to take our sin upon himself. This is all just so that the patience of God could bring about as many possible to come to him. But there will come a time when the lid is blown off. <laughs> and make no mistake, everyone, for good or for ill, will know the identity of the glory of God. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The return. But the return is connected to the resurrection. That's our second, second R. Uh, look at verses 14, and I'll connect it with verse 16. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring those who have fallen asleep, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The resurrection... Is an image that Jesus goes before us as the first fruits of the resurrection. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's that that phrase again. Now, what are the first fruits? Uh, In the harvest, the first fruits were presented to the priest as a sign that the rest of the harvest was to come. Jesus is the first fruits in the resurrection as a sign that we, as a part of that harvest, will come and we are part of what Christ will bring in. Paul changes the image a bit in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, when he talks about our identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus through baptism. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that as just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In theological language, uh, we call this identification with Jesus in his death and resurrection the vicarious atonement of Christ. Now, what's a vicarious experience? any of us have that? A vicarious experience is what? We live out our life through the life of someone else. As an early adolescent, I was a baseball nut. Um, Sandy Koufax was my hero. That tells you how old I am and where I was from. Um, sorry about that. Um, and whenever he was pitching, life stood still. Every ball and strike was a moment to, to linger on. Every game he played. When he did well, I was high. When he got knocked out of the box, I was low. I lived my life out through Sandy Koufax. Well, we live our lives out, not through those kind of heroes, but through Jesus uh, himself. So we who are alive live our lives through him. We await the resurrected life of Christ because he, we die with him and we rise with him, is what scripture says. When Christ returns, he will bring with him all those who have died in Christ. They will rise first, Thessalonians. So these are the words of comfort uh, to those who have died. Now, what about those who are alive? And this is where we get our third R, the rapture. Does that raise any interest in people? Hmm, where that word comes from? Uh, verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air." So that term became very popular through a set of books. Can you tell me about those books? Well, that's a book, that's one, but that wasn't a part of the set. Left Behind Behind series, 16 books, 80 million copies sold, and this was all about being caught up uh, in the air. So, prior to the great tribulation, uh, the the theology is that there will be a snatching away, a catching up, a rapture of the church so we avoid going through the great tribulation. And so, the books, you know, shared images like, okay, planes were crashing because the pilot was snatched out out of the cockpit and nobody to fly the plane. Cars were careening off against each other because the driver was there one moment and gone the next, snatched away. 9-11 calls were coming in by floods because we've lost our loved ones. Where did they go? And uh, so that kind of thought is about that. So where did this term rapture come from? Again, back to verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them and in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The word rapture actually comes from the Latin translation of the Bible, (laughs) Not, not from the Greek language that's there. The Latin translation is the word rapare or rap, rap, rapio, from which we get rapture, meaning caught up. The actual Greek word there is the word harpazo, which means something has suddenly or even occurred very violently. So it's used in the context of Acts 23, for example, where the Roman soldiers seize Paul to keep him safe from the crowds that are trying to go after him. Or in Acts 8, when uh, Philip, who was with the Ethiopian eunuch, is suddenly whisked away, uh, snatched away, and swept up. So that's, the term comes from that. And a popular version of the rapture uh, it, that was portrayed in the Left Behind series talks about a two-phased return of Jesus. The first time Jesus comes is to snatch the church out of the world prior to this seven-year tribulation period, and at the end of the tribulation will be the second coming of Christ, where the dead in Christ will be raised. That's followed by the, the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then the great throne judgment according to that time frame um, in terms of the way this is described. The only trouble with that position is you can't find it in Scripture. That's the only problem. Uh, and, in fact, the text that we have right before us is a contradiction. Uh, to, that very, to that very idea that had become so popularized. Uh, Paul tells us the order is the exact opposite of what the great the, you know, rapture theology says. In fact, who will be raised first? Not those who are alive, but those who are dead. Those who, they will be raised first, caught up with Jesus, and then those who are alive will be, will be joining them. The pre-tribulation rapture theology uh, positions Jesus uh, in a two-stage coming. Well, the Scripture really only identifies one, t- one coming uh, of Christ, a single event uh, that will occur. In fact, the description here is rather, rather astonishing. It says that those who are alive will meet the Lord in the air, um, and be caught up in the air. And that word meet is actually a, a very technical word that the people would have understood in those days because when a dignitary was coming into a town, And the word was out that this dignitary was coming in. People from the town would go out, meet the dignitary, and then bring him in to the town. And that's the image that's used here. You know, that Jesus is descending from heavens with those who have died in Christ with him, and those who are alive will be caught up together with him in there, and they will continue to descend to earth. New heaven and new earth. They will escort Jesus down uh, to, to the location. So, uh, you know, if I have disillusioned any of you with your rapture theology, uh, Tim's email is tim at and you can uh, complain to him and never have me come up here again. Um, so, uh, but the, the idea here is we will be caught up with him. There will be a, a union with him in the air. One event, a singular return of Jesus. Now, the fourth arc. So we had return, resurrection, uh, rapture, and now reunion uh, is the fourth one. And I love uh, Eugene Peterson's translation uh, of this text. The master himself will give the command, archangel thunder, God's trumpet blast. He'll come down from heaven and the dead and Christ will rise. They'll go first. Then the rest of us who are still alive at the time will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the master. Oh, we'll be walking on air. And then there will be one huge family reunion with the master. So reassure one another with these words. I think the implication here in terms of Paul's pastoral concern for the Thessalonians is, you know, what about those who have passed on before us? What will happen to them? What will happen to us? And the implication here is there will be a reunion. There will be a gathering together with our patriarch Jesus, in a sense, under the family gathering, and there will be us gathered together up there meeting him in the clouds and the air, in, meeting him in the presence of the glory of God, as the clouds oftentimes in, indicate. I think they'll be hugging, they'll be high fiving, they'll be, I can't believe you're here. <laughs> you know, it'll be a glorious time. Let me uh, conclude with, uh, with a story. One of my favorite memoirs uh, was written by a man by the name of Sheldon Van Alken. He wrote a book called A Severe Mercy. And it's a story about uh, Sheldon and his wife, davy that's her name, um, who came as students to Oxford in the early 1950s. They came as uh, convinced atheists. They were uh, deeply in love with each other, in such great love with each other, they built what they called their shining barrier. You know, They themselves were just a unit under themselves. They were gods to each other in a sense. Nobody was going to penetrate this shining barrier of their love. And when they came to Oxford, they openly stated that our view of Christians were that they were kind of narrow-minded and backwards. But they found themselves kind of socializing with some Christian couples and slowly began to change their opinions about Christians because they were intelligent and warm and witty. They were not anything like the stereotype that they had had developed. And Davy was the first to break the shining barrier and come to Christ. You know, he, she allowed his love to capture her, and Sheldon was feeling on the outside at that point. But while they were there at Oxford, uh, Davy uh, had got a, a, an incurable disease that, that killed her. Sheldon finally came to Christ himself, and one of the people that was instrumental in helping counsel them them was a professor at Oxford by the name of C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And C.S. Lewis spent a lot of time with Sheldon. In fact, the book contains some 16 unpublished letters uh, between C.S. Lewis and Sheldon Van Alken that were part of that story. And uh, as Sheldon Van Alken was getting ready to move back to the United States... He had a lunch with C.S. Lewis at his favorite pub in Oxford, and they wandered together and laughed a little bit about the nature of life after death during that conversation. And after lunch, they stood out in front of the pub, and C.S. Lewis said to Sheldon, "Uh, I shan't say goodbye. We shall meet again. And then Lewis kind of plunged himself into the traffic went across the street to the other side, was cognizant of the fact that Sheldon would probably still be out in front of the pub looking in his direction. And he turned around and and shouted to him over the noise of the cars. Besides, he said with a great smile on his face, Christians never say goodbye. What a reunion we got ahead. We followers of Jesus do grieve but not as those who have no hope. We grieve in hope. Even as we know that death is the great intrusion, we look beyond it to the great reunion of the family with God, with the patriarch of the clan, who holds it all together. The words of the old hymn, I think, say it very well. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in you as described here in this phenomenal text. So visual, so much imagery here to see us caught up in your presence, to be filled with the glory of God, to have our resurrected bodies that can contain the light that doesn't feel like we can quite have it contained the way we are now because we need to be translated uh, into our new life. And may that hope just resound in us, we pray, even as we deal with human loss, um, balance it out, Lord, we pray, with the hope that is ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelprez.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.